Open our ears to hear you and our eyes to behold your glory. That we would dare to believe the riches that you bring to us through your son, Jesus Christ. The hope that is ours in you and the power to live in this place of healing. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. Can I get a couple of you to help me with this uh, board to come on up? If you don't have a Bible, um, we have them around the room, I think. They should be on a chair. If you have one that you don't need that was on your chair, hold it up maybe for somebody who doesn't have a Bible. Let's turn to Colossians chapter uh, 1. We've been going through this series about Jesus, the man, the myth, and the legend. Who is he? And we've uh, camped out in this passage of Colossians chapter 1, which actually some believe was poetry that was written in the early church that was very familiar to uh, believers about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. So uh, three weeks ago, we talked about how this passage is claiming this outrageous notion that Jesus was actually God. Then two weeks ago, we began to unpack that uh, it's saying that through Jesus, all things were created. And we talked about the Hubble Space Telescope and remember that? The Cat Nebulae and all that glorious stuff. But everything was created for Jesus too. And then last week, Dave did a great job of talking about that not only is Jesus God, not only is the creator, but he also is the Lord of the church. And what does that mean for our lives? So this brings us to this passage in verses 19 through 23, where Paul is talking about uh, our salvation and us being saved. And I want us to jump to verse 23 and listen to what he says after he talks about us being saved. If you continue in your faith, established and firmed, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. He says, you will be saved if. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, when I think about the fact that I'm going to spill my coffee as I try to take the cap off this marker. Who? wait, this locks. I think. No? There we go. If, when you think about this, it's not a foreign concept for us to bring this word into church, because it seems like that this word if is in every area of my life, you know? I mean, think about it. If you study for your exam, you have a pretty good chance of getting a decent grade, right? Yeah? Unless... Now, if, you know, you take care of yourself and you exercise, you could have good health. If you work hard and uh, do your job correctly, maybe you'll get promoted and maybe you'll make a lot of money. If you treat your spouse right, it's possible that you could have a good marriage. If you treat your spouse wrong, they'll probably make a mini-series about what's going to happen in your life. <laughs> if you eat famous Amos cookies every night while you watch the news then you could look like me. Or if you eat rice cakes all the time, 
And let's just stop there for a minute, okay? Does anybody here eat rice cakes? Okay. Some of you are rice cake eaters privately because you're not confessing it right now. But if you eat rice cakes, let's just all assume there is something desperately wrong with you. That is not food. The fact that you pay for that, you should just eat the wrapping that it comes in. But it's huge, isn't it? I mean, if. I mean, it's in every area of our lives. When, if you're single and you're going out, you know, you're standing in front of the mirror and you're living in the power of the if. If I could just get that hair, you know, then I'll catch that eye, then. Or if the breath is just right, then. If there are no bears in the cave, then. Okay. All right. Then if. You know, all joking aside, this could possibly be the most terrifying word in all of Scripture. This word, if. Because if God is the power for everything in our lives. Now think about this for a minute. If what we're saying in here, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday is true, that when it comes to love, when it comes to forgiveness... When it comes to even service, when it comes to money, when it, I mean, the list could go on and on. When it comes to me, that how I get to God for the power to live in these things, if is present in the equation, then it's going to birth doubt in me. It's going to birth fear in me. It's going to birth uncertainty. Because if there's always a condition, if if is the condition in which I experience God's power through these things in my life, then I better learn what that condition is, and I better I better fix this condition so that there's no interruption in the pipeline between me and God, right? And what if my salvation, what if me dying and going to be with the Lord forever has a huge if to it? Wow. Well, we can't ignore it. I mean, Scripture is full of this kind of stuff. In Matthew chapter 7, maybe you've read this, the Lord is talking about the day when many will appear before him. And he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, I will look at them and say, the only the ones that get into the heaven get into heaven, are the ones who have done the will of my Father. Be gone from me. I never knew you. They even said to him, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Is that not enough to satisfy the if? Jesus said, no. Whoa. Well, in Luke chapter 8, maybe you've heard the story of the sower and the seeds. Where the sower is throwing seeds and some fall on shallow soil and uh, the plant takes root and springs up quickly, but then dies. And Jesus later says to his disciples, that's when the, the gospel falls on the heart of someone and they receive it with passion, but the cares of this world choke it out. That they never were a part of the family of God, but it sure did look like they were part of the family of God for a season. If you go to 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John talks about how many left the church. 
And when they left the church, he says it only proves they were never a part of us in the first place. Whoa. And if that's not enough, you can go to John chapter 6. That's where Jesus is preaching on, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And people said, that's too much for us. And they left him. But let me underline something here. It wasn't they that left him. Scripture is very clear. It was the disciples of Jesus Christ that left him. It was his disciples that left him. The only remaining were those 12. And they had no place to go. And Jesus even looked at them and said, are you going to leave me too? The ifs are huge. So what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that if we live in the fear and the doubt and the uncertainty that we ever have salvation, that this is the best ingredient for you growing in your faith? That fear is the greatest motivator? Well, we could talk about that for an hour, couldn't we? How we use that in parenting and how we use that in relationships and how it's easy for us to use fear to manipulate people around us and use it to even manipulate our own hearts. And it becomes the greatest uh, vice or the greatest power or leverage to change our lives. I exercise like Dave was talking about a few months ago. I exercise because if I get fat, then nobody's going to love me. I'm afraid of being alone, so I'm going to motivate myself to get in shape. Fear is a great motivator, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. In fact, let's put it up on the screen. Can we do that? Can y'all see it with this up here? Okay. Because let's go back to 19 and go through 22 and see what Paul's saying here. Because this is important for us. Matter of fact, I would say that everything we do as a community hinges upon this if. The first verse, verse 19 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Go on to the next verse. Or better yet, let me just read it to you. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things on heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul is making a statement here. And here's the statement. If Christ is the reconciler. If, then he needs power, he needs a plan, and he needs purpose. Let's talk about that for a minute. Purpose. If Christ is the reconciler. So let's put verse 19 up there. It says from the get-go that the fullness of God dwelled in him. And the reason Paul put this in there is he wants us to know, he wanted those in Colossae to know that Jesus had the power. That he didn't have just a little bit of power, he had the power. All the fullness. Matter of fact, there were teachers in that day called Gnostics that believed that the word, it was pleroma, which is a Greek word that talks about fullness, that is actually divided. And that God's fullness was divided among many spirits, and Jesus was just one of them. And our journey in faith is to connect ourselves with many different things, including Jesus. And when they all come together, that creates fullness. And so they believed if you could gain special knowledge or special understanding about things, that's going to skyrocket you in your faith and take care of the if. And Paul was saying without any apology here, no, no, no. All 
the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus. Now that's applicable to us today because a lot of us believe that church is one of many things that I put into my life to make my life rich and full. I have a great job, I've got a family, I've got a good car, I've got a good future, you know, I've got tickets to the predators, I've got, you know, and i got Jesus. And so a lot of us, life is kind of like going through the supermarket that, you know, I want 2.1 kids in my bag, you know, and, you know, oh, look, there's a vacation home, yeah, that would be awesome, you know, and maybe a large sailboat, that would be awesome, all right? <laughs> Like right in the middle of downtown Nashville. You could just live on it. You would be weird, but everybody would know you, all right? And we fill up, and we, and in our culture, we believe that if we can fill up the grocery basket with everything that we believe is going to make our life full, then we will experience the fullness of God. And Paul is saying to them, and he's saying to you, wrong. That everything is a mist. It's a phantom. He's making the claim that Jesus, in him exists all the fullness of God. And anything outside of God is the opposite of fullness. In fact, everything disconnected from the fullness of God is actually the definition of emptiness. Wow. You know, uh, it's funny. When you talk about power, when I was growing up... Uh, and I had two brothers, and as young kids, you know, they lose their teeth. You know, you pull your teeth. When you get a tooth loose, you know, you wiggle it, and you play with it with your tongue, you know. And then there comes that moment where it's got to be pulled. And my dad had this technique. And at the time, I thought this was unique to our family, but I'll ask some of you in just a minute, did you ever do this? He would tie dental floss to that tooth. Yes, track with me, brother. And then he would pull about three feet out and he would tie it to a doorknob, to a door, and he would say, we're going to shut the door. So you're on the other side of the door all alone, isolated from the family, outside the camp of redemption, all right? <laughs> all alone in your, in your impending pain. And he would go, okay, on three, we're going to shut the door and it's going to pull the tooth. Why did we do this? Like, did this come from some Grecian? Anyway, and so he would go, one, when would he pull, shut the door? Two. Yeah. <laughs> did, any of you, did any of you pull a tooth by that way? Wow, it was a conspiracy. Probably some cult that our parents were in, you know, that now bring the floss and it will call forth from the cauldron of life, you know. This is going to be a stupid illustration, but stick with me. Imagine my dad tying that dental floss to my tooth and then tying it to a 200-pound chain and then connecting that 200-pound chain to a monster truck. And he looks at me and he goes, Now, boy, just hang on, because at the count of three, Earl is going to hit the gas. <laughs> Jesus had that kind of power. It's ridiculous in comparison ridiculous to understand the, all the fullness that created the heavens and the earth was now contained within a man named Jesus. I, if you don't have a hard time getting your head around that, then you're not tracking with me this morning. Because that is a remarkable claim. Listen to, um, I'd like to read for you. This is L.B. Lightfoot, who, uh, a theologian. He said, on the one hand, in relation to deity, he is the visible image of the invisible God. He is not only the chief manifestation of the divine nature. 
He exhausts the Godhead manifested. In him resides the totality of the divine power in the attributes. Jesus had the power. If that wasn't enough, in chapter, in, in verse 20, let's put verse 20 up there, where it talks about that we are reconciled. There's a, proposition, a preposition before reconcile. In the Greek, that preposition is significant because in the Greek language, that preposition is a word that gives meaning to the word that precedes it or follows it. And that, that preposition does something. It says absolutely, completely, totally. So what it's saying here is that Jesus is the reconciler. He is the complete reconciler. He is the total reconciler. He is the absolute reconciler. Not only does he have the power to do this, he does this. And just to exhaust this power thing, you know, I remember when we were kids, uh, do you remember the first time your parents gave you sparklers? And what did they do when they lit it and they gave it to you? What did they say to you? Be careful. Throw. Be, throw it. <laughs> yeah, be careful. Don't poke somebody's eye out with that thing and don't burn anybody. And so you're running around because this is a glorious moment, you know, that you are solo now in your sparkleness. You know, and you're running around and you're writing, you know, well, you don't know how to write them. But you're, you know, you're drawing bunny rabbits and stuff. And then I remember the next step up was that we started to get smoke bombs. And we got to actually light them. Like they trusted us with a match. And we would light them and then run, you know. And then, you like, oh, wow, such power, you know. But then as we got older, we got tired of smoke bombs and we moved up to the black cats. But there was a glorious day in our lives where dad actually sat in the car and gave us money and said, go get what you want. And then we walked and the guy behind the counter said, come over here, boys. And we walked over there big eyed and he goes, they call these cherry bombs. They are the most powerful firecrackers in the entire tent. And you're like, yes, how many of those can we tie together? You know? <laughs> So, you know, explosions. Well, a number of years ago when we lived out in Bellevue, it was New Year's Eve, and everybody's setting off fireworks, you know, and it's great, until all of a sudden the house shook. Because at the end of our road, this elderly man thought it would really be cool to notch up everything and set off a stick of dynamite. <laughs> Remember this, Renee? They cut off our street. We couldn't get in. The fire department had blocked it off. <laughs> Crazy old men. I love it. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. I'm just trying to help you understand that Jesus has the power. <laughs> this ain't no firecracker we're dealing with, all right? See, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, it says, it has a little sentence there that's very profound. It says, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Now, the reason that's so powerful is because it didn't say Jesus came to try to save his people from their sins. It didn't say he came to try to do anything. It said he came to accomplish the purpose in which he was empowered to accomplish it. 
The second thing is he had a plan. Verse 20. We got that up on the screen? And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Through his blood. He had a plan. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, they sinned. God said something very interesting to Eve. And he says, I'm going to put division between you and the serpent. And he is going to strike your heel, but your seed will crush his head. And what is he talking about there? He's saying at that very moment was the first time that God was revealing to us that there was a plan that was already in place. That there was one present, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created. That there was a plan of redemption that was coming that Jesus would take the form of man and he would appear on this earth in all the fullness of God and the power that he has given to crush the head of Satan. See, the whole Old Testament is preparing us for that. It's a shadow of the reality of what we see in Christ on the cross. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 13. The high priest carried the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. That through the history of Judaism, they would take these animals and they would sacrifice them and shed their blood for the sins of the people. But it was a sacrifice that they had to continue year after year after year because none of them were complete enough to forever take away the sins of the people. Verse 12, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gates to make the people holy through his own blood. That Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb. That his blood was shed. The perfect blood of the Messiah who came. And his plan was to shed his blood for the sins of many once and for all. That's why when Jesus uttered these words on the cross, it is finished. He was uttering the words, it is finished. He did it. He accomplished the plan of reconciliation through the power that was his in the fullness of God. A couple years ago, Renee and I had a shower uh, built into our bathroom. And... uh, so we had a team of guys that came and built this, you know, stone shower. It was, like, awesome. And every day I'd poke my head in and, like, wow, you guys are great. Because I don't know how to do any of that stuff, all right? Just glorious. And so after a couple of weeks, it was finished. And we, you know, the grout had dried. And we were told, you're free to use your shower now. What's amazing is, is that I did nothing to finish this shower. Nothing. I didn't even carry a bag of grout. I did nothing. It was finished for me. And because it was finished, now the only thing that was left was for me to christen it with my music. (laughs) (laughs) To enjoy it. To celebrate the completed work. Now, the only way that illustration would be perfect is if the work was done for free, but it wasn't. But (laughs) in Christ, it's finished. He completed it. We have nothing to add to it. And because of that, now we live in it and we celebrate it. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3. I want you to see something. Interesting stuff here. Galatians chapter 3. If you're in Colossians, just go left. About four or five pages. You should be there. Verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Now, let's stop there just for a minute. What does that mean, all who are under the law, all who rely on the law, observing the law, are under a curse? 
what he's saying there is this, this if, if this if that is the condition to me getting to God, if this is based on you doing something, are you accomplishing something, are you getting your life together enough, or you not doing something, then you are under a curse. Because it says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now this is remarkable for us, especially for those that have been Christians for a long time. Because we keep moving back into the law. When do you feel the worst about your relationship with God? When have you ever heard, man, God is so far away from me right now? Isn't it when you feel that you're doing the worst at keeping the law? God says, if you're living that way, you're living a cursed life. Well, let's go over to uh, verse 21. Chapter, let's go to chapter 3. So is the law, chapter 3, verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. In other words, if it was possible for me to be good enough, if it was possible for me to live a life that would remove the if between me and God, then righteousness would come through our ability to do that. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The word I want you to hear in there big time is the word given, not earned. That the grace that we're longing for that removes the if, that was given the power of Christ to fulfill it, and his plan to bring that grace to us, was given to us. Romans chapter 4 says it like this. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offsprings received the promise that he would be heirs of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. In other words, if you're living in a paradigm of believing that this if is removed by something you do, then not only you're under, you're under a curse, but it says in Romans 4, your faith has no value. <laughs> so how does my faith have value? I have to step into this paradigm, and this is radical. It's not Jesus did 99% of the work, I do 1%. Jesus did 98% of the work, but I really believe. And that does the other 2%. Or that Jesus did 75% of the work, and you watch me. I'm going to get really busy in church, and I'm really going to get involved at Midtown. And man, that's going to make up for that other 25%. And that's going to remove the if. No more doubts, no more fears, no more confusion. <laughs> no, Jesus did 100% of the work. What does that mean? You being here today adds no value to your relationship with God as it stands in your salvation. You could come to Midtown every day of the week for the rest of your life, and it would not be enough to remove this if. You could read the Bible every day. It wouldn't remove the if. You could pray every moment of every day. It wouldn't remove the if. You could fast 
You could put on clothes that are ugly and cut your hair. You know, you could run around and say the sky is falling and live in a sailboat downtown. It wouldn't remove the if. There's nothing you can do to remove the if. God knew that. That's why he empowered Christ. That's why he gave Christ a plan. And now let's talk about the purpose. Because this is a dangerous place to live. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. Oh, but I got to say this, all right? You see where it says, whether things on earth or things in heaven? It's not just us that he's reconciling. Wow, this is, I wish we had time this morning to talk about this. But he is reconciling the heavens and the earth. That ever since man fell in the garden, it says all of creation has groaned since that day, longing for the moment of reconciliation. All of creation was thrown into a downward spiral. If you read about our universe, scientists say that we live in a universe that is dying. That is dying. And what scripture says is there's going to come a day where Christ will return. And it's not Christ is going to destroy the earth. Christ is going to restore the earth. It says that no longer will heaven and earth be separated. But in Revelations chapter 1, it says heaven, get this, heaven descends on earth. It says it will descend out of the clouds. It is the new Jerusalem. And what is the new Jerusalem? It's the bride of Christ. It is us. And we come down to take, to take over the earth that has been restored and redeemed. That heaven and earth are married once more together. There is no longer any separation. What was meant to be has now been brought to past. It's beautiful. I, we don't have time to read some of the stuff, but the lion will lay down with the lamb. The child will play by the pit of the serpent. I mean, it's unbelievable what the Lord is going to do. It's not just us, but he's birthing us into a reconciliation into the new kingdom of the world that we live in. And why does he do it? Verse 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That's an interesting verse to go and think about. How your minds impact your behavior. We don't have time this morning. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death from accusations. Is there, is there more? Is that it? Hang on, let me open up my Bible. Because it says... But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusations. Listen to what he does. In what he has the power to do, in the plan, he does three things to us. He makes us holy, which means we have been set apart. We are changed. This is not a He's going to. He's one day. It says he is done. He has made us holy. Really? The second thing is it says that we are blameless. Are we, is that what it says? No, what does it say? It says that, yeah, we're blameless. And what is blameless? We are out without spot. There is no defect to be found within us. Are you kidding me? Come on. And then the last is this. It takes blameless in its throat. It's the old man dynamite now, all right? Because now it blows it up. And it says, if you don't believe that, if that blows your mind, get this. You're free of accusation. No one, no one, no one can bring a charge against you. No one can lay claim and say, but don't you see what they did? 
You are free of all accusation. How is that possible? How is it possible that God makes us holy, makes us blameless, and without accusation? How does he do that? Through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Through his plan of redemption to restore us. That we now wear his holiness. Now we wear his blamelessness. Now we wear that which is accusation free. That is true about us. So what's the purpose? This is awesome. We are his workmanship. For his glory. Friend of mine, uh, I don't know if any of y'all saw the CMA Awards. That just happened. Uh, a friend of mine made, this, made the set for that. And uh, he had emailed me. He says, you got to check it out. Maybe the biggest set I've ever made. So I'm, I'm watching this. And, you know, it's, it's got TVs in it and everything. And I'm like, wow. That is glorious. And that's what Christ is going to be like when we stand before the throne of God. The pride of, look, Father, at my workmanship. Look what I've done. So, let's go back to the uh, BF. It's still there, isn't it? So what does it mean? Look at verse 23. If you continue in your faith, if you continue in your faith, and firm, not moved from the hope which is held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. If... The gospel is where your hope is, which this is the gospel. If this is the place, then we are secure. Then our future is certain. That our identity has forever been changed because we are no longer trying to get to God. God has now come to us. We are free. Listen to what it says in John 10. My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. If this, if this is where your hope is, no one can snatch you out of the hands of the Father. For he has you secure. So what does that mean? Let me just wrap it up by this. We can live however we want to live, right? We're forgiven, right? Augusta used to say this. Love Jesus with all your heart and then go do whatever you want. And I want to I challenge you with this. Yeah, you can. I mean, we are forgiven people. We've been forgiven by the power of the work of Christ, by his plan, and for his glory. We are set free. Where, grace, where sin increases, grace increases even more. When he rescues even the filthy of us. Those of you who are more filthy than the rest of us, which is not possible, but you may believe that, then we are set free. That his grace is even greater. Glory. Yeah. We can live however we want. Or, in all the craziness, or we could live in the reality of this. See, like today. Today, we're having the lunch for all our friends who have been replanted here in Nashville from Africa. And why are we doing that? 
Are we doing that so that we can remove the if from our lives? No, we're doing it because the if has been removed from our lives. We have the power to love because we have been loved. See, this is the great story of the gospel. Now forgiveness takes on a whole new meaning because I've been forgiven. I can forgive. I have been served. Now I can serve. I have been given everything I need for life and godliness. Now money becomes my slave to serve my Lord rather than me being its slave. And here's what's beautiful is, wow, does it change this right here? Yes. A huge dynamic change when I remove the if in that way. But we forget that, don't we? In a few weeks, a uh, new movie's coming out, uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy, good friend of mine. We got a chance to preview this this week. There, it's the story of a uh, kind of a nuclear winter to where the whole world has turned dark. There's no hope. Life is lost. There are no animals left on the planet. Many people have died, and those that are left on the earth are, most of them are very bad people except for this one man and his son. And they're traveling the road. And they're trying to find life, and they're trying to figure out what's next, and they're trying to hang on to something. And they see some pretty dark stuff. And the father says this to his son, his little boy that is trying to make sense of this harsh reality that this world is so dark. And he says something to his son that is true. He says, you know, son... You forget what you want to remember. And you remember what you want to forget. Isn't that true? Now let me tell you how this applies to this. Because, let me tell you, in all of our lives, we still have a dynamic of shame. We still have a dynamic of guilt. We still have a dynamic of fear, and we have a dynamic of uncertainty. And we tend to just kind of live with them in our house. As long as they just don't cross the line. Like, you know, if they'll just leave me alone enough, I'll leave them in the house of my shame that of what I did last night or last week or two weeks ago. Or how maybe I failed in marriage three years ago. Or maybe how my own sexuality is so dark that I can't let anybody know the reality of what I struggle with. Or any of that. And so we live in this, this category where we've said this is true, but it doesn't touch that part of me that is so deeply ashamed of who I know myself to be that I can't let anybody ever really know who I really am because who I really am is marked by what I've done. We're still living under the law. Or how about fear? Another great scene from Cormac McCarthy's movie, No Country for Old Men, is where the sheriff's at the end of his movie, standing at the sink, and he says, I always figured when I get older, God would come and find me. But he never did. And you can't hardly blame him. I wouldn't come and find me either. The fear that somehow or another, this counts for everybody in this room except for me. This is a truth that's real for everybody here, but I can never exaggerate that truth and let it explode itself into my life. So my fear is based on one thing alone. God doesn't have a plan for me. The future is uncertain. I'm not safe, and I'm in this all alone. Ew.
if this is true, those things can't live in your house anymore. Do y'all understand that? It's time to do war. It's real. It's time. We can't just hang on to this. There's too much poverty in this world. There's too much injustice in this world. There's too many broken people in this world. There's, there's too many people that don't know the words of freedom that you're hearing today. We can't play with this anymore. You've been set free. You don't have room for that shame in your life when the Lord's removed it. Why do you keep putting it back in your life? Or that fear that you live under. As if somehow or another this depends on you. Why do you keep moving back under the law? When the Lord says you've been set free because I came and found you. We stand in a new place. It's a secure place. It's solid ground. And I would even go so far as this. If we are in Christ, we are the unsinkable people. Nothing, nothing, nothing can happen to me apart from God's grace in my life. Nothing. To where even when I hit hard times, I rejoice because this is true and he's not left me. Yeah? So why do we serve today? Because we are the ones that give freely. Why do we love? Because we are the ones that are outrageously loved by God who says, listen to my song over you. And why do you forgive the people that have hurt you in your life? Because you've been radically forgiven. And you understand your own frailties. And you make lots of room in your life for other people and their brokenness. Right? If Christ is the reconciler. If the gospel is my hope. We're free. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're our reconciler. Thank you that you were the one that came with the power and the purpose, the plan. And we pray, Lord, that you'd meet us right now. You know, Lord, and I, I don't know um, what you need to do in some people's hearts in this room. But Lord, take us through a season of repentance, I pray. Help us to freely put down those things that we've loved more than we loved you. Help us to put down the shame and the fear and the guilt that we tend to hang on to in spite of what you've already said. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to put down anything that keeps us from saying that this demands our life, our awe, our identity. Lead us in that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.